There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that, whilst emanating from within the discipline, have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Ray, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. In 2008, Limon McHenry wrote an article entitled Biomedical Research and Corporate Interests, a Question of Academic Freedom, where he stated the following. Pharmaceutical companies have become the patrons of medicine, but this patronage comes at a high price. Academic freedom cannot exist in a discipline in which industry controls the research agenda and the dissemination of data. It is therefore imperative that medical science wins back its autonomy and restores confidence in its literature. In July 2022, Jackie Moncrief, together with various co-authors, published a systematic umbrella review in the journal Molecular Psychiatry, which addressed the serotonin theory of depression, and concluded that there was indeed, and I'm quoting, no consistent evidence of there being an association between serotonin and depression. The findings of this review brought into question the role of antidepressants in the treatment of depression and opened up a discussion both amongst professionals and in the media regarding the use of such drugs to treat depression, the biological basis of depression, and to some extent brought into question psychiatry as a discipline, noting that Professor Moncrief is a psychiatrist. This then led to a discussion on the role of Big Pharma in influencing narratives that serve their interests. But these issues aside, what about the impact on the people who matter most, the patients? On today's podcast, entitled Depression and Serotonin, What's the Fuss? I would like to welcome Professors Michael Burke and Colleen Aldous. Michael is a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Deakin University in Geelong, Australia, and he's an alumnus of the University of the Witwatersrand here in Johannesburg, where he qualified as a medical doctor and specialized as a psychiatrist. Colleen is a healthcare scientist at the University of KwaZulu-Natal's College of Health Sciences, and she has her own views and specific ones on Big Pharma. So Michael and Colleen, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Just a full disclosure as a psychiatrist, I have and continue to prescribe antidepressants as I feel necessary for patients suffering from not only major depression, but also various anxiety disorders. As with all episodes of Beyond Madness, we need to define our terms of reference before we get into the substance of today's conversation. So I'm going to start with you, Michael, with a very obvious and very broad question. What is serotonin? Well, serotonin is one of a very large number of neurotransmitters, also known as chemical messengers. So the brain communicates internally, largely through chemical transmission, although electrical transmission also plays a role. But these are signaling molecules that form a very complex and incompletely understood web of communication between the billions of nerve cells that exist within the nervous system. So I think what's, 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 what's important there is that it's incompletely understood. I think that the idea that we've arrived at some kind of complete science in terms of neurotransmitters, how they operate, how they function, is important to, to, to dispel because I think it also creates false and unrealistic expectations of, of, of where we are and what we can deliver and, and what people might 
expect. But obviously, serotonin is but one neurotransmitter. And certainly when it comes to depression, there are others. Do you want to elaborate just a little bit so that we get a sense? Oh, absolutely. So the, the, probably the three major transmitters that are involved in, in, dep- in mood is serotonin, noradrenaline, and dopamine. Right. But it's also true that there are hundreds of other transmitters, uh, singling molecules, including immune molecules, stress response molecules, and almost all of which, if you look at the existing literature, all of these are dysregulated in some subtle way in people who struggle with mental health problems. Right. Um, so in a way, it's probably correct that there is no single molecule responsible for any major psychiatric disorder, at least not that we understand. Yeah. Some transmitters seem to be more important in some disorders than others. So the, nord- the monoamines seem to be more important for mood Dopamine probably is more important for psychosis. Glutamate has roles in many disorders. Yes. But these things exist as a very complex network of multiple uh, uh, interacting yes. signaling pathways. Well, I think that's very important because, you know, the the way in which things have been presented, specifically with that particular paper, but often how it's understood is to me simplistic and reductionistic. And so I've, I've, I've generally had a problem with how people understand what is going on. And I think it's often very difficult to convey the, the complexity, which we ourselves do not fully understand. And I think that in some ways, the neurotransmitter aspect of depression almost for me felt kind of crude in a way. It's like a, a very, uh, uh, much an entry point into a lot of other things that are going on. And it's not just one yeah. neurotransmitter, it's multiple neurotransmitters. And I think that these neurotransmitters speak to each other and there are interactions. And, and, and I think that, you know, once you start getting into that, then you start beginning to appreciate, well, hang on a sec. There's a hell of a lot going on here. This is not just one thing and you, you know, it's like a nail and you smack it with a hammer and it's done. It's, it's, it's anything but that. And I, and I think we've kind of, um, created a situation where we've almost set ourselves up for, uh, 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 criticism. But the truth of the matter is, I don't know. And I'll come back to that, but I just want to emphasize it up front. I don't know. Me personally, I never bought into low serotonin. I mean, that for me was like, mm, yes, that's what people might say. I don't know, Michael, your, your thoughts. I agree. This was a complete straw man argument. Um, look, the reality is, uh, I don't think anybody accepted, even 20 years ago, that this was a simple problem of low serotonin. Right. The best understanding, and again, there's a wonderful meme that you see on the internet, right? Simple yeah. but wrong, complicated and maybe right. <laughs> uh, so the great difficulty with neuroscience is people try to distill really complex things into simple messages. Right. And if you make it simple enough that anybody can understand, you're going to get it, you're going to oversimplify things. So in the process of communicating a really complex thing, people have come up with simple messages, yeah. which have oversimplified. Yeah. But I don't think any credible neuroscientist ever thought that this was a disorder purely due to low levels of one neurotransmitter. Nobody, nobody ever believed that. The closest we ever came was understanding that for each neurotransmitter, there are dozens of receptors for those neurotransmitters, yes. locks and keys. And what's happened is some of those key, some of the locks were stiff and sticky, and some of those locks 
unlocked too quickly. So some were super sensitive and some were blunted. They were rusty. Right. Uh, it, I don't, I don't even think even 30 years ago, we understood that this was a key problem. There was not enough or too much serotonin. But what we did understand was not only for serotonin, but in the context of depression, neuroadrenaline, dopamine, adenosine, glutamate, GABA, and each one of dozens of neurotransmitters, there were subtle differences in the receptor sensitivity to many of these transmitters. So I think the whole premise of the paper that anybody really believed there was a single deficit of one neurotransmitter as the sole and singular cause of any disorder was incorrect at the get-go. Right. And I would yeah. tend to. I, I was saying that there was ex, there's been extensive criticism of that paper. Yes. By scientists, uh, I'm aware of many formal rebuttals that have gone out criticizing yeah. many of the methods and premises of that paper. Unfortunately, though, those will never get read or never get commented on, and only the primary paper gets the attention. Right. But it's unfortunate because it's a significant oversimplification, and I thought it was always a straw man argument. So, Colleen, that kind of brings me to, to, to I think, one of the issues that, that you had in terms of how a theory became a fact, became a marketing tool, and how Big Pharma potentially used that for sales, essentially, and the concern that academia was in some way potentially implicated in that? Because I know that this has been an issue that you raised in an, in an article that, um, that you wrote. So just touching on what Michael has said before we get back to looking at serotonin in just a little bit more detail, just your initial thoughts. Well, I looked at the, the history that they put out there and, and where this theory had come from and how um, we'd been made to be chemical beings right and then i agree with michael completely i don't think there are many psychiatrists or neuroscientists who would have gone with that single theory but the problem i see is that big pharma created drugs simplified a message took that simple message to your gp that most people get to see and also, in some cases, direct to the consumer. And so there was this message put out that if you're depressed, it's because you've got low serotonin. And I question it as well. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, mm. but I know that some people have actually responded very well to SSRIs. Right. Um, Serotonin-specific, just to be clear, serotonin-specific reuptake yes. inhibitors. Yes. That's the actual okay. mechanism. Yes, carry on. Yeah, so I've seen it work, but I've also seen it not work in others. Um, What is what has not been understood is that depression has got multiple causes, like you've been saying. Yes, I do not believe that um, depression is caused by low um, serotonin levels. If I had to lose my cat and my dog. And one of my parents right now, I'd be very depressed. And I don't think I've now got low serotonin and it'll make me depressed after that happens. Yeah. So it's it's very, very complex. My issue with Big Pharma is, and I've become aware of this with other drugs as well. Um, the COVID, COVID pandemic has been my biggest education right. beyond my bachelor years in the 80s. Um, 
to see that in in many cases, Big Pharma makes potholes to go and fill them instead of tarring new roads. Right. And it's an easy way to, to make money. But having said that, we need Big Pharma. We need Big Pharma to push the frontiers for new therapeutics. So I'm not against Big Pharma. No. I'm against some of the practices to for profit. I think that that echoes something Michael and I were speaking about before we started recording, Michael, just to pick up that pick up on that point that Colleen just raised in terms of the role of of of, of big pharma and funding for research and development and pushing the frontiers. Your your comments on that? Yeah, well, I think there is a problem with big pharma. The biggest problem I see with big pharma is that they've largely exited the CNS field. So Eli Lilly, who were the inventors of Prozac and Zyprex, are they gone? AstraZeneca are gone. GlaxoSmithKline are gone. None of these companies are operating in the CNS field anymore. They're not developing new therapies. Uh, We have had pretty much no meaningful new therapies in the CNS space for the last decade. There's almost no real innovation. There are some biotechs that have got some interesting new compounds in development, but for me, the biggest problem is we have a massive unmet need. As you mentioned, Colleen, our drugs help some people and others are not helped. Psychotherapies help some people, but others are unhelped. Uh, so there's a desperate need for better, newer, safer, more effective therapies. The biggest problem we have is that uh, in most domains of medicine, uh, we rely on industry to develop therapies, whether it's oncology or cardiology. Uh, we need the industry, uh, and we have a massive deficit in terms of activity of pharma in the psychiatry space. Uh, as a consequence, we have a real stagnation in the development of novel therapies. So this is, for me, a major problem. So this raises a big issue for me in terms of how clinicians engage with big pharma because I think one has to take a balanced approach. You know, I publish South African Psychiatry. It's a local publication, comes out quarterly, supported by industry. But we have very clear boundaries in terms of how we operate. And I have a very good relationship with industry and I know it's reciprocal and it's, 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 it's really about boundaries. Where do I end? Where do you start? And the fact that you may, for example, take out an advert in a publication doesn't mean that as a publication, we now do whatever you would like us to do. There's a commercial aspect to big pharma and that's fine. We recognize that, but there's an important component in relation to the integrity of the clinician in terms of how they engage with with big pharma. And I'm certainly going to touch on that. But there was another point that you made earlier, Colleen, or something that you said that I needed to just jump in. Just to be clear, psychiatry is a biopsychosocial discipline in terms of its ethos, in terms of how we understand illness, in terms of how we treat illness. And increasingly these days they're adding a spiritual component as well. So people are talking about a biopsychosocial spiritual. So I think that Again, we're talking one neurotransmitter theory, no, but we're also saying one trick pony in terms of only medication, also not. There has to be much more than that. So I think it's much more comprehensive in terms of how we understand our patients and how we actually engage and treat our patients. But I just wanted to come back to 
serotonin, Michael. And I mean, because obviously that has been the focus of this particular paper and, and, and people's interest in what is the substance and what does it do? I mean, just in terms of where serotonin is, 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 is implicated in terms of behavior and bodily function. Some comments on that? Because people think it's all about mood, but I think it's, well, not I think, I know it's a lot more than that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, serotonin is initially discovered as a gut transmitter. Right. So uh, it was discovered because it influenced the motility of the gut. And even we know that the majority of circulating serotonin comes from the gut. Uh, so it's a very important transmitter in that system. Uh, we're involved in work looking at the role of serotonin in signaling growth in bone cells. That's an uh, interesting so one. That's an interesting one. You know, so the idea that serotonin is only a brain transmitter is fallacious. It, right. It's involved in platelet function. It's involved in, you know, if you have to think of the body as a, a series of Lego blocks and the function of the of the block depends on where it sits and what it's connecting to. Right. So these transmitters have ro- very different roles in completely different tissues. The brain is just one of them. So and the, it has different functions in different areas of the brain. Yes. So beyond mood, I mean cognition, memory, libido. Libido is a big one because we see that yeah. often as a as a as 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 a side effect yeah. of, of of an SSRI. The gastrointestinal stuff that you're talking about, mm. even in migraines. And yeah, some of sure. the agents which operate to, to prevent migraines are operating serotonergically. So I think I just wanted to put it on the table that serotonin is not just about depression. It's actually everywhere. And that, in fact, the major contributor to the, let's call it the pool, comes from the gut. Comes from the gut, which I think is maybe, you know, interesting to people because they hadn't necessarily understood that. But obviously, you know, as uh, neuroscientists, and that's why I, I think to myself, so much of neuroscience potentially is in the gut because that's where one of our major neurotransmitters is. So we've spoken about the fact that there are multiple neurotransmitters, there are relationships between neurotransmitters, but I wanted to touch on something specific because I think that that particular paper we've referred to from Moncrief and her colleagues really looked at the serotonin hypothesis, the chemical imbalance theory of, 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 of depression. But I wanted to emphasize something specific, and maybe you want to comment on that, Michael. Depression is a very physical condition. It impacts on your physical functioning. Maybe you want to just jump in there and, 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 oh, and elaborate. That's absolutely true. Uh, if you look at uh, – you can look at a vast diversity of bodily systems from the gut to the heart – to the immune system, uh, all of these are impacted in some subtle but measurable way in people who are depressed. The other thing that we know about depression is depression affects your risk of developing medical problems. Yes. So you're more likely to develop heart disease, you're more likely to develop dementia and, cardio- and diabetes and many other disorders. Now, whether this is due to the depression itself or whether this is due to shared risk factors, I think is still incompletely understood. But uh, there's no question that depression is a bodily disorder with impacts across a whole diversity of bodily functions and impacting on many disorders. So when I think about depression, I think about sleep disturbance. I think about fatigue. I mean, these are very physical symptoms. Appetite, loss of appetite, or sometimes excess appetite. Libido, loss of libido, and the sort of variation that happens during the day, the what's so-called diurnal variation. So there's something very biological 
and something very physical about major depression as we would diagnose it in terms of DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual yeah. of Mental Disorders. Michael? But it's equally important to understand that depression is not a singular thing. Right. So we're kind of talking here about almost like an endogenous or a biological or whatever we call depression. But the majority of people who are depressed don't have that. They have what you referred to, Colleen, earlier as depressed mood in the consequence of environmental or social interpersonal stresses in the context of losses. And there it's almost more physiology than it is pathology. So the vast majority of people who experience low mood do not necessarily have significant depressive illness. Uh, And there are many different varieties of depression which can come from very different sources and all need very different types of management. So we need to get away from seeing depression as a unitary singular thing, all needing the same kinds of treatment. But I think that's Um, very important, Michael, because, you know, my next question was going to be, how do we distinguish depression, as we're talking about it now, versus, let's call it a miserable life? Things are difficult. Things happen to certain people. Or there are environmental stresses. And Correct. the concern is that potentially there's too much depression, that it's too easily diagnosed and too readily prescribed for. I don't know, Colleen, what your thoughts might be there, but in terms of the data that's out there, I mean, 13% of American adults on antidepressants, 8.3 million NHS patients in the UK on antidepressants. That's a lot of people on antidepressants. So, Colleen, as the educated consumer, what are your thoughts about, you know, the, the, the plethora of the diagnosis potentially, which might not be appropriate. And just coming back to what Michael has said, you know, horses for courses. So depending on what the source of your mood disturbance might be, let's look to see where it fits in major depression or not. But if you are experiencing a depressive mood, where's it coming from and what might be more appropriate or most appropriate in terms of intervention? So Colleen, some comments. This is another complex situation that I think could lead to further misunderstanding. Yes. If we had to look at who was prescribing all those antidepressants, it's likely to be the first doctor the patient gets to see, not the specialist psychiatrist. Right. Why is that doctor doing it? It's because he sees a patient in front of him who's told him he's depressed. There's a, a list of drugs that of antidepressants on his desk, the reps have come around pushing their drugs, saying, we've got this lovely new antidepressant, or, you know, our sales of antidepressants are so good because they are the best, etc. So there's this continual marketing to that first level of, of health care. Mm. And then the patients come in, and usually doctors have to see them in and out in 20 minutes at most, if not even less time. And so those prescriptions, I think, are going out far too freely at that level. I don't think that there's, uh, there are many doctors who say, go and let's see if, if counseling will help first. Mm. I don't think there's a lot of that happening because then th- that doctor might think my patient's going to lose trust in me because I'm not giving them a tablet. Right. I think, I think what you're speaking about is the fact that a symptom is not a diagnosis. Yeah. And in order to determine exactly what you're dealing with requires an assessment. In a busy general practitioner practice, 
You don't have an hour or two hours to get the kind of context, which I think is so critically important in terms of understanding the patient in front of you. But I think your point is well made, and I think, Michael, you might add something to that. Who are, who are the biggest prescribers of SSRIs? I don't think it's psychiatrists, actually. Well, I, well the reality is that in almost no healthcare system in the world are there enough psychiatrists to right. see the 15% of people in the general population who would present for care. So it's appropriate that primary care is the front line of therapy. And I have to say, I think most primary care practitioners that I interact with are pretty darn good. One of the problems we have is as a clinician, it's actually really hard to predict who's going to get better and who isn't. Clinically, we don't have good symptom profiles that will tell us. Uh, And certainly a lot of work has gone on to diagnostic tests and biomarkers, and none of these have been any good at predicting who's going to benefit from what. Uh, I think this is also very much system dependent, and some systems have very liberal and easy access to psychotherapy. Right. Uh, And general practitioners in some systems will refer first to psychologists before they will prescribe an antidepressant. It doesn't necessarily reduce the rate of antidepressant prescription, I have to say. But uh, depending on – it's also – you know, practitioners operate depending on what resources are available. Mm. Uh, you can you can manage to treat an awful lot more people with medication than you will ever manage with psychotherapy. Because psychotherapy is a very scarce, time dependent uh, resource. So, in the few healthcare systems where psychotherapy is scaled up to be widely available, now people are trying to get around this by getting digital approaches and internet psychotherapy. But they, even though they might be effective. Uh, I think most pay, most consumers still would prefer to see a real human being then, mm. then I think interact so. with. Them. I think so, but, but I th- may have promise. But I think you raised a very important point. Actually, there's no biological marker. There's no diagnostic test that I can pull your blood, send it off to the laboratory, and say yes, you've got major depression, and yes, you would need an antidepressant. And in fact, I can determine which antidepressant you are most likely to very respond best. I mean, that would be first prize that we would actually be able to to do that. And the truth of the matter is we don't. So, therefore, it's very much a clinical assessment. Um, I, there was just something else that I wanted to throw into the mix before I, I, I forget in terms of the biology of depression. And what really piqued my interest some years ago was coming across brain-derived neurotropic factor where you're actually seeing that part of the brain and um, – we're speaking specifically about the hippocampus, where there's actually atrophy of brain cells in response to a major depressive episode, and that, in fact, you get what's called cell apoptosis, where the cells actually die. But on antidepressant treatment, where there is a response, those cells can regenerate. So, Michael, do you, uh, that might be something you could just comment on. Absolutely. So we now think that one of the really important pathways whereby antidepressants work, and actually for that matter whereby ECT works, is through increasing the growth of new nerve cells. So we were all taught that nerves, you, you know, when you, by, the, by the time you're a young adult, you have all the nerve cells you're ever going to get. Yes. You're not going to grow any more ones. We now know that's not true. We're continually growing new nerve cells, and but that process slows in depression. And antidepressants act through enhancing the growth of nerve cells. We also know that if you block the growth of nerve cells in people given antidepressants, the antidepressants don't work. 
So huh. you can completely block the antidepressant effects of a drug like an SSRI by blocking cell growth. It's interesting. Um, so I think. So, so, so I think, and this is where the serotonin story comes in. So the serotonin story might be the lo- the 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 key that unlocks the lock that causes cellular growth. Right. So it's not a problem necessarily of too much or too little serotonin. It's a problem that serotonin is the key that unlocks cell growth in this context, as among other neurotransmitters that play this role. I think what's really difficult so is to… a complicated story. Yeah, and I think that's exactly the point, complex and complicated, because what you're seeing is a cascade of hmm. responses to altering serotonin in this instance, if we're talking about it, but there's many other things going on at the same time. And I think the reason that I wanted to bring it in is to, is, is, is to actually show there's a hell of a lot going on in the brain in response to these agents. So let's not get hung up on whether it's serotonin or noradrenaline or dopamine, but these agents do something where there's a cascade of effects that goes beyond simple neurotransmitter, neuroreceptor, but going down into the cells and at a cellular level impacting on components of the cell. There's one specific one called the mitochondria. And I mean, everything now is seemingly, not everything, but there's a lot of emphasis on what is going on at the cellular level beyond neurotransmitters and neuroreceptors. So again, I I think the biology, the science is unfolding, but it is complex. And there are no simple and and, and straightforward answers to, to complex questions. So, but I wanted to come back to you, Colleen, because I think that I'm sitting now as a, as a, as a general practitioner and I've got a patient who's miserable in front of me. And the truth of the matter is prescribing medication that could potentially have an impact without being able to know exactly who will or won't respond or whether they do suffer or don't suffer from a condition for which an antidepressant might be the go-to treatment modality. You're sitting with a patient in front of you, you've got 15 minutes. And so the question is, how do you unpack that and wrap it up and move to a point where the patient is satisfied? Because let's face it, our patients do need to have a certain level of satisfaction when they leave the consulting room. So there may be an overprescribing, but in this instance, the question becomes, what else might I do? Am I going to say, well, you know, I don't think that you qualify for medication, but I'm going to refer you to someone else who will then do a more thorough assessment um, I think there is a certain pressure to to potentially prescribe, and I don't think it's got to do necessarily with big pharma. I think it's got to do with what happens between a doctor and a patient. Your thoughts on that, Colleen? I think that we've got to a point now where people expect a prescription. Right. And so the doctor is sitting in a very difficult position. But I'd like to bring something else um, to the table now. Hmm. I asked a friend of mine who's who's – works in pharmacogenomics and my my discipline is in genetics okay and now she tells us (laughs) um i asked him about the pharmacogenomics of ssris and we found that there are two genes that look at that work on the metabolism of ssris so this might explain why you give ssris to some people and it works like a bomb Mm. And then you give them to somebody else and it doesn't touch sides. So I think there's a whole future in looking at pharmacogenomics 
and looking at alternatives. Mm. And the CPIC dosing guideline has got a lot of information. It's not, there's a lot we still have to learn. But there, there is that option, um, looking at pharmacogenomics. It, it isn't outrageously expensive. I don't think many medical insurance covers it, but in South Africa, a test would cost 3,000 rand, mm. which is not for the man in the street. No. But if you've got a patient who's been coming to you over and over again with the same symptoms and nothing is responding, that might be an option. It's not only um, looking at referring on, but getting extra information to, to work with other people to move forward. I think that's interesting, and I think it's available. And, Michael, what would your comments be? Because this is almost coming down to the sort of rapid versus slow metabolizers or non-metabolizers. Yeah. What would your thoughts well, be, there, Michael? There's a whole family of enzymes in the liver, like little Pac-Men that chomp away at medicines and other substances that we consume. And some people have variants of these Pac-Men that are very chompy, and some people have variants of these enzymes that are pretty lazy and they don't do much chomping. And so if you've got a very fast act, fast chomping enzyme, you're going to have low levels of any medicine that you take that gets chomped by that probe, by that enzyme. Yeah. If you have a lazy one, you're going to end up with high levels. So if you're a f- fast metabolizer, you are likely to need higher doses of a medication and if you are a slow metabolizer, you're more likely to run into side effects. At least that's the theory. Mm. Now, there have been several studies that have been done on this. Uh, and I, well, uh, one of my PhD students did one of these studies, and he found that your enzymes were able to predict the dose needed to respond for one antidepressant, in this case, venlafaxine. Right. Um, there is a very large study currently going on in Melbourne on the same pharmacogenomic platform uh, to see if this improves the ability to prescribe drugs or will lead to higher remission rates in people who have the pharmacogenomic testing. The big advantage of the pharmacogenomic testing is it's a once-off. You only need it once, and that tells you what your your profile is, and that's for life. but I think that the jury is still out about just how useful it is because, you know, there are many other things that determine whether you're going to respond to antidepressants or not. History of prior trauma, ongoing marital disharmony, the list goes on. And not yes. everybody who gets a side effect is it, it's um, pharmacological. Mm-hmm. Certainly uh-huh. our research would suggest that the majority of people who report adverse events, they're not pharmacologically related. So I think and this is... This no is reaction. this. Sorry, talk over you, Michael. But I mean, this this raises the issue of confounding variables. I mean, yeah, there absolutely. are so many confounding variables, and yet we're trying to almost develop a silver bullet where we say, "Well, this is the one," and we can say it with a measure of confidence because our testing shows this is what you're most likely to respond to, and yet. That might not happen because there are a whole bunch of other confounding variables that haven't been built into the algorithm, so to speak. And so I think that we are trying to look for perfect solutions with really complex problems. And I'm not sure that we, we arrive there easily. And I think that's part of, part of how we need to educate. Um, yeah, Michael. Yeah, no, you're completely on the on the on the money, Chris. So my own take is for most people with most solutions, there isn't 
there isn't a silver bullet. Right. That's not to say we don't see somebody whose symptoms evaporate on the right antidepressant or on lithium or whatever. But for most people, uh, management consists of what I call a series of five or ten percenters. Right? So you get 20% from an antidepressant. You'll get 10%, 20% from psychotherapy. You'll get another 10% from improving your exercise. You'll get another 20% from improving the level of communication in your marriage. You'll get another 10% from joining a social club and uh, getting and going for regular walks with your dog. Uh, and you add them all up and you kind of come good. But for most people, there isn't a singular magic, magic bullet. To make it even more complicated, what's a 5% for person A is a 20% for person B and a 0% for person C, depending because everybody's situation is different. So I think that a a wise and astute clinician tries to understand what's the problem for this person and what are the elements contributing to their issues and how do we target the issues that are relevant to them so that we help them in a more targeted and personalized way. For me, that's kind of where we have to go. But I think the field has long gone away from the idea that there's a single magic bullet for everyone. I think that's a naive assumption, which most people have long forgotten about. But I think, Michael, you raise a very important point. And, Colleen, maybe that's where we sit with the busy general practitioner having to process everything that Michael has just said into a 15-minute consultation where you've got this person in front of you. And in fact, there is so much that is potentially impacting on this particular individual. And there are so many variations, or should I say permutations, of what might be necessary for them. And so we get into this notion of personalized medicine, where I look at the person and I say, right, what is it for you? I mean, there's the average But what about you, the specific individual? And I think that's where I have sympathy for the busy general practitioner and where I can fully understand where one might reach for the script pad. Not because you necessarily believe that that's the be-all and end-all, but certainly as a first intervention, you're saying, well, look, you know, one of the first principles is do no harm and hopefully we'll do some good and then I'll see you again. Because I don't think that anybody should ever prescribe without a follow-up consultation and without further consideration of where you want to go with the process. So I'm not sure if, if, if that kind of puts into context, Colleen, what the busy practitioner might be experiencing. I absolutely agree with you, but where's the busy practitioner got his education from? Aha. Now there's a key issue. Right. Carry on. So once he's left med school, gone through his housemanship and everything, he's getting constantly educated by two or three reps a day. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the private practitioner. Right. And the, the, in, it's known that prescribing habits are very closely related to the, the frequency of visits by um, reps, etc. I think that we've got to step back from this and we're going to start educating the public too. And I don't know how to do this. This is just a thought I'm putting out. Yes. We've got to start getting the public to question things. Right. I mean, things like the U magazine have even perpetuated the one chemical, you know, this one size fits all. If you are depressed, you go and get this one tablet. These kinds of magazines are what the consumer consumes. Right. And that if it's in black and white print, it's the fact. And then the doctors are, are have these other marketing pressures that they have to believe. Yeah. I mean, they, they have to trust the rep that's coming into them. Right. And 
we've seen in history how this has had terrible consequences. The Vioxx scandal. Right. And people can just go and Google the Vioxx scandal. One company that does one of the most noble things in history, donating a drug that clears river blindness everywhere and then goes and produces Vioxx and covers up the deaths. I mean, we've got to start educating people to start questioning. And that's what I wrote in that article is that we cannot keep taking as gospel truth whatever is told to us. So that was an article you wrote in July of yeah. this year. Yeah. And it really dealt with the role of, 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 of Big Pharma. And in fact, one of the articles that you were referring to was the one that came out before the molecular psychiatry article written by a chap called Ang, together with uh, Moncrief, where they were evaluating the role of the professional and academic community in endorsing certain theories and in perpetuating certain theories, and that at the end of the day, there was further consideration and thought needed to how do we engage and how do we go about our business. But you raise a very important point. You see, the whole issue of continuing medical education should technically have addressed that. Where, you know, once you leave medical school, even as a specialist, once you finish specializing, you should be constantly exposed at a certain minimum level to ongoing education. But the question you're asking is, where are people in the profession getting their education? And the question is, does that influence their knowledge and ultimately their prescribing? Michael, your, your thoughts, because you would have listened to what Colleen had to say. Yeah, uh, look... I, I, there, there is no question that uh, intense exposure to industry influences people. That's why marketing exists. Yes. But the issue is right now um, companies market new products. Once mar- products go off patent, there's no imperative to market anymore. Yes. So right now I'm not aware of there are almost no drugs left on patent. Uh, it's a long time since I'm aware of seeing a rep anywhere because nobody's got anything to sell anymore. I haven't seen so anything. I think 20 years ago <laughs> when there were a lot of new drugs. Uh, I don't think this is an issue now simply because there just aren't the drugs that anybody is selling Right. because there's almost nothing left on patent. I mean, uh, you know, 20 years ago I used to go to a conference and there were all these stands by the pharmaceutical industry selling their new product. So I went to the Cape Town conference recently, a couple of weeks yeah, ago, yeah. and there's just generic manufacturers. So each one sells everything, right. and you just say, you're going to buy my brand of everything or your brand of everything. Yes. So it's Dr. Reddy's who's got everything that's on the market, and Adco Ingram who sells everything that's on the market. Yes, And they just say basically, well, I'm cheaper. Um, and that's, that's, that's their marketing because they're all selling generics. Um, if you go to a local conference here, this, I haven't seen a pharmaceutical industry at a stand for forever. So what the, we have. So here is, is in Australia. So sorry, just just to in clarify, Australia, here yeah. being in Australia. Australia. Yeah. What we have is the Defence Department recruiting staff, the state of Tasmania recruiting staff, this hospital chain recruiting staff. Right. There's nobody selling anything. There's people trying to. So it's kind of moved from sales to recruitment. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's got anything left to sell. But you know, what well, I think it was an issue a decade or two ago. The yeah. problem is that we don't have new drugs, therefore we don't have reps because they don't have much to sell anymore. This was a problem 
So, uh, I mean, if in a way the it's a tragedy that we don't have new any new treatments. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the the flip side of that is we don't have much in the way of pharmaceutical marketing because nobody's got anything to sell anymore. Well, that's kind of interesting because it speaks to the fact that we trade. It's another problem altogether. And it speaks to the fact that we're trading on old knowledge and the power of marketing in terms of consolidating what one might think, what one might believe. But there's a point that comes up from what you're saying, Michael, with the lack of new product. It's something that I'm seeing now is the repurposing. And obviously, I've seen an emergence of ketamine as a possible uh, uh, treatment for treatment-resistant depression, acute suicidality. And I'm beginning to see the emergence of the use of psychedelics, psilocybin, good old mushrooms. And I was told recently that Big Pharma is moving into a neighboring country, Lesotho, to start actually potentially moving into the psilocybin space. So I think that what I'm beginning to understand is that Big Pharma is potentially moving away from the traditional drugs and we're moving into repurposing of existing products and then packaging them accordingly for psychiatric indications. I don't know what your thoughts are there, Michael, or what your experience has been. Well, I think that there's an avalanche of interest in the repurposing of drugs of abuse as potential therapeutics. Yeah. So whether this is ketamine as a treatment for mood disorders, whether it's psilocybin for mood, anxiety, PTSD, whether it's medicinal cannabis for God knows what, right. whether it's amphetamines for ADHD, there's an avalanche of interest in repurposing abusable drugs as therapeutics. Uh, I think this will take many shows to unpack. Yes. Uh, and I think there's a lot of divergence of opinion about this. So there's some people who think that this is the new horizon. Yeah. And then some people who have great a great degree of concern about where this might lead. Uh, but it's an incredibly complex and very fraught issue. I have to say, repurposing for me is a very interesting area. I mean, we're doing much of our work in repurposing, but largely the medicines we're interested in are cardiovascular medicines right. that we think have effects on mental health issues as well. Right. So we've been working in our unit uh on stem cell models. So we take stem cells from people and we try and work out what known treatments do and we see what potential treatments do the same and might be useful for mental health, do the right. same as, as known treatments and might be useful for mental health treatments. So, so we're looking at a whole series of cardiovascular medicines and anti-diabetes medicines from statins to metformin to some blood pressure medicines called yeah. angiotensin blockers and we think a lot of these medicines might have promise for the treatment of psychiatric disorders. And these are medicines that have established safety profiles. Yes. So I think that drug repurposing can be a very easy, low-cost, low-risk path to develop novel therapeutics. But a lot of work needs to be done before these things can ever get used. I think psychiatry is very good at that discovering novel uses for other drugs and bringing them into the yeah. mental health uh, uh, space. But I think that yeah. one of the issues with antidepressants is, of course, the high placebo response rate, that uh, when you look at the trials, a lot of patients are responding to placebo, and that the placebo response is an actual biological response. I remember reading a paper on regional cerebral blood flow, 
where you had placebo responders versus active component responders. And the only difference, aside from the fact that they both responded, was what was happening in terms of the blood flow in their brains. So I think that we also as a discipline, and I can't speak for other disciplines, but we do have a high placebo response rate, specifically when it comes to antidepressants. And yes, this is a, a real problem. Uh, it's a major, major problem. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things about it is that if you look at antidepressant trials from the 1960s, 1970s, placebo response rates were very low, and the gap between placebo and, and medicines are were huge. Yes. Now that's not the case. Um, the same medicines struggle to separate from placebo. Now that's not because I don't think we can't make the same medicine the same way that we used to make it in the 1960s. I think the big problem is the nature of clinical care. Uh, In the 1960s, you had lots of very unwell people who had not previously been treated who got onto studies, and these people often responded beautifully. uh, Now, if you're depressed, you're going to go to your primary care practitioner, you'll get a medicine. If you get respond, if you respond, you're out, you're fine. If you don't respond, you'll try something else. If that doesn't work, then you'll try something else. And if that doesn't work, you'll put your hand up for a clinical trial. So most clinical trials, like it or not, end up enrolling quite a refractory and unwell group of people. So there's a bias. The biological effects of the medication are much less likely to emerge and much more nonspecific factors emerge. We can call them placebo response, but much more psychological nonspecific factors change the clinical course so it's much harder now in healthcare systems where treatment is widespread to get patients who are severely unwell and untreated into trials very few people who are severely unwell and untreated will volunteer for a clinical trial as a first port of call so i wouldn't you probably wouldn't no and so i mean colleen as a research scientist how do you respond to what michael is highlighting as actually a real problem not just for psychiatry, but, but development. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's completely valid. Uh, I mean, he's making a really, really good point. And it's one one of the things that I've been kicking against um, controversially is how evidence based medicine has become to mean only one thing: the randomized control trial. So I'm currently working on another way of looking at evidence based medicine, going back to Sackett's original definition. And when it comes to repurposing drugs, looking at the totality of evidence, and then maybe we get even even better picture of where these drugs can be working, not just looking at randomized control trials. Because as you said, Michael, today an RCT is not going to give you that big p-value that you, you really want as a manufacturer. But if you're going to start looking at the totality of evidence, you might have more certainty. I yeah. think... What, what industry has to do is do much bigger trials and more expensive trials, and they often have to do many trials because we know for most, you know, even studies of the traditional SSRIs that were done 30 years ago, you needed to do several trials to get a couple of positives because most trials failed for methodological reasons. Yeah. And um, I think that's, that, that's a big issue, actually. When you look at science, you've got to look at methodology. Because I think that we're very often looking at a bottom line, but we're not actually interrogating how did you get to that bottom line in terms of the methodology and all of the biases and the limitations, which are so critical. But I think just in terms of of, of serotonin, just to be clear, as much as it's implicated at some level in depression, 
also anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, even schizophrenia, where you look at the antipsychotic drugs, which are combinations of serotonin and, 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 and dopamine activity. And I think it's just important to kind of put serotonin in a much bigger picture than just thinking about it in terms of one condition. So the question I had right at the outset was how this has impacted on patient care. And the truth of the matter is I haven't had any of my patients come to me to say, hey, take me off this drug because I think it's not working. Because the truth of the matter is I think where these medications are appropriately prescribed, there is a chance that they will work. And I think that when you're prescribing within a broader context of a biopsychosocial approach as a psychiatrist, you give the patient the best opportunity for the best outcome. And, and, and I suppose one of the reasons why I wanted to do this program or this episode was because I'm, I'm concerned that potentially the media has misunderstood the data and made more of it than necessary, which may have negatively impacted on how people think about what doctors might prescribe. Michael, your comments yeah. and then Colleen. No, you're completely correct. And I mean, we have a difficult, the problem with the media is the media needs stories. Yeah. And in medicine, I mean, this is perhaps a cynical way to look at things, but there really only are two stories, wonder drug and killer drug. Uh, yes. So it's either a miracle cure, we've now cracked some problem, or this stuff is going to kill you. Uh, and anything that says, yeah, it's useful for some people, but not everybody. You've got to use it carefully. It's got caveats. It's complicated. We don't really understand it, but it seems to be helpful about – that's boring, right? Yeah. So if you want to get a headline, you have to say, cure for cancer. We have found a miracle cure or don't touch the stuff. It's going to kill you. And those are the only things that grab headlines. And unfortunately, the media needs headlines. Their yeah. business is headlines. Uh, our business is trying to sell a boring story. Yeah. We also have to sell a story that makes, that's simple enough to make sense. Uh, but correct enough that we haven't lost the essence of it. And that's really hard. It's difficult. Um, because in, in mental health, there isn't such a thing as a simple story. They just don't exist. Mm -hmm. Everything is more complicated than you think it is. And, and if it, you think you understand it, it means you don't understand enough about it. And the truth of the matter is, the more you think about it, the more complicated it gets. And I Correct. think the more you know, the less you know. <laughs> exactly. Colleen, your thoughts? No, I think what this Moncliff article highlighted for the man in the street is that there are different messages coming out but I think yeah. also it's timing after the the COVID pandemic and what's come out about big pharma during the COVID pandemic has highlighted to the man in the street the fact that we have to question we have to question for ourselves we have to ask our doctors to question for us we want to trust our, our doctors but we cannot just keep accepting what we are being told and the media has also got this trusted news initiative yes where they would say that what they are saying is correct and that is not misinformation or disinformation meanwhile they are actually putting their own form yes. of mis and disinformation into the, the um yeah into the public. So I think if anything good came out of that article, it was let's question. Yeah. It's not just always accept. So I think just to capture what I just want to capture what you said, Michael, which actually speaks to one of the major cognitive distortions that you find in patients. All or nothing reasoning. And that can be one of the most destructive forms of of of, of thinking. Just a final comment from you, Michael, and then I'm going to move because our time has passed and there are many things that I still wanted to discuss, but you wanted to say something, Michael? 
Yeah, look, I think the Moncrief article was a heavily criticized article. Yes. At a methodological level. Right. Uh, I think many people were surprised that that actually made it into publication into a prestigious journal because there were so many problems with that paper in the way it was analyzed, in the way it represented the data. Uh, I don't think it was an accurate reflection of the science. Mm-hmm. And I think many people shared that view. The tragedy was that it got so much airplay. A lot. And it, it got huge airplay and it shed doubt in an area where doubt is not, in, was misplaced. Yes. Uh, it, it created a straw man argument that serotonin isn't that, you know, there's no such a thing as low serotonin. Therefore you shouldn't use antidepressants, which is about as logical as to say, you don't have paracetamol deficiency there. You shouldn't, therefore you shouldn't take paracetamol for headaches exactly. and paracetamol shouldn't work for headaches. So it was a, it was really, it was a straw man argument. And I thought, uh, a very misleading article and it's very unfortunate it was picked up as actively as it was well, I, because I thought it was poor science. I think it spoke to something that the media really wanted to get their teeth into. But you know, Colleen, you said something in your article, which I, I think is really worthy of quoting because I think it does sum it up. And you said, in the case of the chemical imbalance theory for depression, claims are now being challenged. Arguments will and should proceed and we should work toward a new consensus, which I think was a very rational kind of response where you said, look, we don't want to prejudice what's working, but we do need to question more in terms of how we understand things. So, Michael and Colleen, I want to thank you for your time, knowledge, and views in providing perspective on an issue that uh, for patients and practitioners might have been somewhat unsettling. And in closing, I'm going to quote Warren Buffett of all people, who I think captures an essential element of the discussion, which is trust. And he said, trust is like the air we breathe. When it's present, nobody really notices. When it's absent, everybody notices. So think about that. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness. In proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. And now I'd like to introduce Jackie Maiman. Jackie is a pharmacist with 35 years working experience in the health sector, specifically in the pharmaceutical industry. She's a past chairman of the Western Cape branch of the Pharmaceutical Society of South Africa. She's an elected member of the South African Pharmacy Council, serving her second term, where she chairs the practice committee. She's also the founding director of the Independent Community Pharmacy Association and is currently their CEO. Jackie believes that community pharmacy is ideally positioned to positively contribute to the health and well-being of the people of South Africa. Jackie, welcome. Nice to uh, be able to chat with you. Can you tell me what value do you as a pharmacist add to the customer experience? So, yes, I think pharmacists can add tremendous value. So pharmacists are experts in anything related to medicines. Right. So we understand how medicines work, what they're for, what they interact with, what the side effects are, how we can um, help people cope with those side effects. So we also are one of the most accessible healthcare professionals. You know, you can just pop down to your yes. pharmacy, go in and chat to your pharmacist without even a um, an appointment right. and discuss anything health-related with that pharmacist. So that's from the medicine's point of view. Yes. But on top of that, pharmacists as well 
are able to treat many minor ailments. So yes. anything from a gastroenteritis with mm. nausea and vomiting to a sprained muscle. Right. We've got a variety of over-the-counter medicines, which we call pharmacist-initiated therapy, yes. which we can recommend for people to keep them good and healthy and well and all the rest of it. Right. On top of that, if you've got a chronic condition, pharmacists can assist you to get to your treatment goals. So if you're diabetic, we can help you monitor your blood sugar levels and ensure that you reach those goals, which is a normalized blood sugar level. Right. We also do a lot of preventative health care. So we can vaccinate, we can keep give you your flu jab, sure. stop you getting sick during the winter. Mm. And then lastly, I think one of the things that a pharmacist can assist with as well are many of the lifestyle diseases. Right. So we all know the lifestyle diseases, smoking, drinking, eating mm. too much. And pharmacists are well-placed to assist with smoking cessation, uh, weight loss, advice on exercise and such forth. So as I say, for a really holistic look at yes. health, your pharmacist is available. And I think what's important is, is, is that your pharmacist, generally speaking, knows you as a patient pretty well. If you go to the same pharmacy on a regular basis for whatever, over-the-counter stuff or for your prescription medication. So in a sense, I'm not saying that the pharmacist replaces the family practitioner, but they are a first line who could actually deal with things at a primary care level. So, and, 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 and there's this range of services that you've mentioned. I don't know to what extent people necessarily fully appreciate the services that you have mentioned as being available at their pharmacy. Is there an issue with communication? I think so. You know, I think a lot of um, people still see the pharmacist as somebody that counts tablets. Yes. But there's so much more to the pharmacist. And you're absolutely correct. Something that we do in my experience over the years that I was a pharmacist is developing relationships with my 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 patients. Yes. Um, knowing what medicines they on. So when they come in and they require um, over-the-counter medicines, I know which ones to give them. Mm. I know the family history because, yes. I mean, I ended up treating children of the right. patients that I had. And that is so important, um, that link. We do get to know you really, really well. And I think, Cliff, as well, something that you said that is uh, very um, pertinent is we don't replace a general practitioner at all. Right. But we are very well-placed to be able to say to you, you can treat this yourself or you know what, I think you need to go and see your doctor. I think that's important, and I think that also speaks to relationships and the issue of, of, of trust where you can share with your pharmacist and you will trust their word to guide you one way or the other. And I suppose it's about the, the continuity and the consistency with which the customer goes to a pharmacy, understanding that actually – there's a role that the pharmacist plays that goes beyond simply dispensing. And I think that that's very important. It's about a relationship at the end of the day. Definitely. And so important as well that you do use the same pharmacist because we then know what chronic medicines you're on. And so we can give you far better treatment. There's nothing worse than you popping in. We've, we've never met you before. Right. And you, you know, you say to me, well, I've got high blood pressure. And I say, well, you know, what are you taking? It's a little white tablet. Yes. And I go like, oh dear. <laughs> Which one would that be? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's a pharmacist's nightmare. Absolutely. Jackie, that's been very helpful and it's been great speaking to you. And uh, I wish you all the very best. <laughs>